Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 1st, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Over this March 1st edition of Ask a Leader, we're officially lengthening African History Month to year-long honoring and celebrating how we wouldn't all be where we are today without such immense contributions. Angeline Dukes is my first guest. She's currently a PhD in UCI's Department of Neurobiology and Behavior and President and Co-Founder of Black in Neuro. Her exit interview will get before she settles into her new job on the faculty at the University of Minnesota. In the second segment, South Coast Rep Production Director Lou Bellamy will talk about the innumerable nuggets in his show, What I Learned in Paris. The show runs at this Costa Mesa venue through March 19th. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Angeline Dukes, currently a PhD candidate in UC Irvine's Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. Her research focuses on assessing the long-term behavioral and cognitive exposure of nicotine and cannabinoids. She served as a teaching assistant, lab instructor, and a tutor and has led many guest lectures. Angeline is one of the co-creators and founders of Black in Neuro, the goal being to provide black students interested in neuroscience with the mentorship and access to opportunities needed for their continual success. She's also acted as a competitive edge peer monitor, a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow Program Writing Consultant, and as a decade-plus mentor. Angeline, we just got to do a little background sometimes, go back further. She's the daughter of Haitian and Trinidadian immigrants, and she's also a first-generation college graduate. She completed her Bachelor of Science in Biology at the HBCU Fisk University. She's this close to defending her dissertation for her work in Christine Fowler's lab at UCI, investigating the long-term effects of adolescent nicotine and cannabinoid exposure. Angeline has also been an NIH-funded Mark Scholar, and we've talked about her fellowship with the National Science Foundation, and is currently a NIDA T32 fellow, and that is a little bit geeky even for me. Well, she might say that when she's talking about the pathways she's been on. She's also a fellow in the Society for Neurology, is it? Neurosciences Scholars Program, and has participated in the SPINES Summer Program in Neuroscience Excellence and Success. That's what SPINE stands for. She's always offering a helping hand, paying her good fortunes forward. This is her KUCI exit, but not final interview, if I have my way, as she heads to the University of Minnesota at Minneapolis. This bio, it gives context for her recent tweet, that's like two days ago, I'm only one person. And I mean, she didn't put the exclamation mark. I'm putting that in there. It's a theme for black academics. We're going to cover that too. She joins me in studio. Woohoo! It's the first in two years, folks. It's so thrilling for all of us. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Angeline Dukes. Or is it Dr. Dukes? We can't, we can't break it yet. Not what? yet. Not yet. Almost there. Give me about, uh, just about um, a little bit more time. Uh, 
a little more time. Yeah. Do we get to watch it? Can we? I know there's virtual defenses, or we can go to your the the setting where you're going to defend it. So I'm going to try to do it hybrid style. So in person, hopefully here at UCI, I'll fly back for the in person part of it, and then also live streaming. I'll have it on Zoom, so that way um, people in my Black and Narrow community and my family who are living abroad can um, come and be able to watch it and be a part of it as well. And. Uh, Include me on the stands list. I want to be on. Oh, no, of course, okay, of course. <laughs> well, first, Angelina, it's, the, it's so obvious, but first tell us about how you found neuroscience as your calling. Honestly, it uh, kind of happened in some ways. So I didn't intend to major in neuroscience at all. Oftentimes when I talk about my story, I like to start with the fact that I am a daughter of immigrants. And so growing up, um, you were kind of told that becoming a medical doctor or becoming a lawyer are like the things that you do to make your family proud of you. Um, and I was I had no interest in law at all. And so I decided that I wanted to uh, pursue medicine and I was going to be a pediatrician. So all my life growing up, if you would have asked me, I would have told you that I'm going to be a pediatrician. Um, and it wasn't until I was in undergrad um, that I actually met a black woman professor, that I met a professor who looked like me and um, was doing the things that she was doing. And being at Fisk really helped um, show me that this was an option, that, you know, I could do other things with a degree in biology other than becoming a medical doctor. And so I had like this mini existential crisis when I was an undergrad um, where I realized I didn't actually want to become a pediatrician. I was doing it because I thought that's what would make my family proud of me. And it wasn't what I was passionate about. And so I had to really think about the things that I was passionate about. And I realized I really love teaching and I love mentoring. And so I decided I wanted to become a professor. And it was those black female professors that I had who showed me the way to get there, that I had to go to graduate school um, and do all of that. And so when I was applying for graduate school, I didn't really know what I wanted to uh, focus on. I didn't have a specific field that I was going into. So I applied to interdisciplinary and interdepartmental programs. And I just happened to apply to UCI's interdepartmental neuroscience program. But I absolutely love it now. Um, I couldn't see myself in any other field. So I just kind of feel like life works out that way. Well, were there any kind of public health kind of drug um, addiction kinds of uh, narratives that you thought, man, we're not getting enough of this done. We're not representing enough people. Or that, were there some of those kinds of exposures that really sent you to neuroscience investigations? Not in particular. Um, I think for the most part, I really love the work that I'm doing right now with addiction because I think that everyone um, knows someone who has some type of drug addiction, right? Whether it's just cigarettes or it could be a caffeine addiction or it could be a, a many different factors. And so it's really easy for people to relate and try to understand the science behind it. So whenever I'm talking about um, my research in any ways, like it's really easy for people to draw those connections. And that's the aspect of teaching that I really enjoy because it's meeting people where they are at the level of understanding that they have and then adding on to that. And so for me, I love that I can help connect those dots for people. And when you were talking about these mentors, they they were likely modeling the academic and the mentoring for mm -hmm. you. You were picking up on that, like, this is how you interact over the career between faculty and aspiring faculty members. I mean, they showed you that way. So that planted the seed for the multitude of roles. Mm -hmm. But yeah. did they ever, I mean, I, I'm going to ask this later, but I guess I want to ask it now. Is so, but they didn't, did they let on that this is exhausting work for the person of color to hold all of those, keep all those plates in the air? Oh, 
they were very honest. I mean, they led it with a smile, of course, because that's what we're taught to do. But um, they would often be like juggling multiple positions, trying to balance all of their students, right? Like having all of these service requirements in addition to their teaching and their mentoring. And so it is um, exhausting in a lot of ways, but they always, what I truly appreciated about all of my uh, professors at FIST was that they always made time for their students in the best ways possible. So if there was something that I really needed, like I remember one time in particular when I recently decided that I didn't want to pursue medical school and I was interested in graduate Mm -hmm. school, um, I knew that I needed research experience. And so it was my first time applying for a summer research program. And I just happened to be, you know, going on Google, trying to find summer research experiences before class one day. And it was like a Thursday or Friday that I was doing this. And the application was due on Monday. Oh, my (laughs) I did not have uh, enough time at all to try to, you know, figure out um, how to put this together and like ask for letters recommendation. But I think because I went to such a small university and because I had um, those wonderful connections with my professors, I was able to email them right away. And I was like, I really want to, you know, be involved in this research opportunity. Do you think you'd be able to write me a strong letter of recommendation by Monday? And they were like, absolutely. You know, I will make time to do it. And so because of that, I got into my first summer research experience. So that's the importance of no matter how long, because when I've had Danielle Watt on before and we talked about, boy, there's a lot of, you got to get a lot done in the summer camp experience that kind of thing so but it was so pivotal it's a short time is necessary and sufficient to get a lot of jobs done Mm -hmm. and and you're living proof of that well um so we've already started a little bit talking about your research in particular are are you working um um, on animals or do you yeah so so uh, i work in mice yes okay So you're watching what they're doing, a little brain sort of lighting up with. The- so what I do is um, adolescent exposure to uh, nicotine and cannabinoids like THC um, and how that affects long term drug taking and drug seeking behavior. So um, essentially what I do is when the mice are during are in adolescence, I'll give them to nicotine or I'll give them um, THC or I'll co-expose them to both substances. And then in adulthood, I do a series of different um, anxiety associated tests. I'm able to perform surgery and they're able to self-administer nicotine themselves in adulthood. So I can really see, okay, if they're given these types of drugs in adolescence, does that change the way that they give themselves nicotine in adulthood? And so this is really informative um, as teens are being exposed to these drugs of abuse, right? So like human teenagers vaping or, you know, consuming edibles and things like that, right? How that can impact their drug taking behavior in adulthood. And, and I mean, I know there's a lot of details in and setting that up, but it has a major effect on their adult consumption. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. they're super mm-hmm. vulnerable. So I, I, I'm not making small. So tell us more about what you're finding. Yeah, so uh, in preliminary studies, the things that we're finding, so I've been exposing them previously to um, a synthetic cannabinoids. So there's uh, phytocannabinoids, which come from plants, right? So that's the THC and the CBD that most people are familiar with. But there's also synthetic cannabinoids, too. And so synthetic cannabinoids are ones that are just made in the laboratory. They're um, not available. There's, they're not anywhere but available in the market. Uh, the, the so laboratory. they are. Uh, <laughs> so so people do make them. and Where's they synthetic stuff coming from? So they're they're man-made. So people usually make right. them either in like Ooh. actual scientific laboratories, drug dealers. Oh, they are so, making them. Yeah, they're yeah. Cooking weeds. Uh, in a way, <laughs> they um. So they make the chemicals and then they spray them on plant material, and then people can smoke them like a joint. Um, there have been laws passed to make them illegal because they're actually more dangerous. Um, there have been more instances of people ending up in the hospital or even dying from um, the synthetic cannabinoid exposure, um, and so it does have an impact 
on, you know, health and circumstances of human people as well. And so I look at this synthetic cannabinoid exposure during adolescence as well and co-exposure with the nicotine too, um, just to see the impacts on, you know, this later drug taking behavior. And so what we're seeing is that male mice that are exposed to uh, nicotine or they're co-exposed to nicotine and the synthetic cannabinoid together during adolescence, they actually take more nicotine in adulthood. But in females, they actually take less. Any reason? Any... uh... Lo- I'm sure there's lots of reasons. That's, so. that's where your work keeps going <laughs> yep, on. Yep, and on it's and on. a continual process. So when you're talking about the synthetic cannabinoid, mm-hmm. the problem is there's no way of knowing. Not not that dealers really care about how much, but there, you know the dose, so to speak, of mm-hmm. that cannabinoid is unknown. So I mean that's that's the hazard. Yeah, it's it's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. But it's probably kind of dirty those synthetics they're spraying on those plants. Because you really have no idea, like, you know, you're really just taking their word on it and trusting that whatever they tell you is the actual amount, but you you have no idea. And so it is concerning, you know, youth especially being exposed to these different drugs of abuse and even being exposed to um, like jewel paws, like the e-cigarettes and the vape pens and all of those things, right? Um, There have been studies that have asked youth, like, what do you think is in them? And a lot of them will say like water vapor or there's no nicotine in them or things like that. When in fact, um, it has been shown that some of the products that say that they are nicotine free actually do contain nicotine. So this begs then the question when you're preparing in your career and you're mentoring others is there is, as I've increasingly learned from so many wonderful grad students in all of the sciences, the importance of messaging, getting the message out that, you know, the vaping marketing campaign has been really very unhelpful. It's been all about the the market share, but it's not about the hazards. And so are you seeing the ones you're mentoring, they're going, well, maybe I'm not suited for the lab, but I've got my public health messaging. That's that's where I'm going to run with my career. You see that? I've been seeing um, a lot more, especially with COVID, right, and uh, talking about like the misinformation that's out there frequently and just like learning how to better communicate science to the public. That's yes. been a huge push of just getting people to understand the work that we do, why it's important, what it means when these things are coming out and just really being able to get, you know, the public who are funding these scientific enterprises, right, to really understand the work that's being done. And so um, I think regardless of whether people are really trying to stay focused, like in the basic sciences or on the more clinical side, um, there's definitely definitely more of a push for this scientific communication to people who aren't scientists, right? So being able to talk to your grandmother about it, being able to talk to, you know, your neighbor or person on the street, um, and being able to have these conversations in ways in which um, they're able to understand, like, exactly what's happening, um, I think is really important. Exactly, exactly what's happening. So we're seeing very high on this food chain of public health. They're falling down. And I, I saw in a talk that Professor Andrew Neumer gave last week to a a civic group and saying public health officials have fallen down on the messaging. And so I I hope that the ones you're mentoring are not the least bit phased at that they see a a, a huge space for them to move in and take over where Mm -hmm. the preeminent figures have fallen down on their public health messaging. I think that it's there's theirs. lots of opportunity, yeah, for uh, especially like the younger generation to really step in and being able to communicate in different ways. I think 
one of my one of the big things that I've been doing lately and um, we've been trying to do with Black and Narrow is really meeting people where they are, right? So yes. a lot of people have been turning to social media, right? We don't necessarily turn on the news, especially for younger generations as much. Um, and so we do tend to, you know, look at TikToks or look at tweets and like see what's going on and get updated in those ways. And so I think having messaging that reaches the target audiences in ways that makes things understandable for them is really a, a gap that needs to be addressed. So our are you or others working on sort of like tagging, flagging the misinformation in that and your TikTok accounts? So there are wonderful uh, science communicators. So ones that pop in my mind are like Raven the Science Maven um, and Science Sam. She's up in Canada. And so all of those people um, have been really addressing a lot of these issues, especially when it comes to COVID and trying to like put good information out there and um, address a lot of the misinformation that's going on. And so they are fantastic (laughs) in the work that they do. But I must say that I've noticed, though, that there's an another example of a person of color mm-hmm. that you know she was kind of public she was going through a rough patch mm-hmm. like about two weeks ago so everybody just asking person of color hey could you just do this well you're probably in a long line people have been asking mm-hmm. so uh, for those and I here I am asking Angeline could you just do this interview today <laughs> I've asked lots well so for those who just joined us my guest is Angeline Dukes currently a PhD candidate in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior and co-founder president of Black in Neural and she's investigating addiction, learning, and memory and behavior. And she can be followed on her Twitter handle at Future Doctor Dukes. That's Dr. Doctor. So you want to say more about what you're finding? I mean, you're you're already presenting stuff around the country. Yeah, I've I've been giving quite a few presentations, both about my research, but also about Black and Neuro, um, which I really love being able to tie in both and to really bring at the forefront um, the importance of, you know, Black researchers within these different types of fields. And so it's been amazing to see um, those types of people just doing these work all across from, you know, nicotine addiction to um, cannabinoid research. And I've been meeting some really amazing people at different conferences I've been going to um, who are people of color who are also in these fields. And so our experiences of sometimes being the only one or two in the room or like within our departments and in these different settings, um, being able to connect with other people at conferences and stuff has really helped me personally feel like I belong more. So Angeline, there is a point where when you're transitioning from research on mice to humans mm-hmm. that there I mean you can't deal with different ethnicities and races with mice mm-hmm. but that's going to have that representation is going to have to happen when those clinical trials are transition yes. from what yes. your models are so mm-hmm. do you have um, is there a role you have in saying okay here's my findings and now in order to make this this research really valid and mm-hmm. really useful we need to all we need to expand the spectrum of all the clinical trial research participants. Yeah, I mean, that's do you have to say that or people are sort of like getting the, the news now? I think it's it's getting a lot better. So um, at like recent conferences I've been to, I've been whenever they talk about like patient demographics, right, they try to make sure it's not only in like white populations or only in affluent communities, right? They're trying to really ensure that um, it's a more representative sample that they're using for their patient populations, which is incredibly important, right? Because if you're right. going to say broadly that like this affects, you know, um, people in general, then you can't just only have one type of demographic that you're looking at um, in these studies. And so I think it is getting better. I think there's a long history of mistrust, um, in particular with, within the black community and with, uh, within other communities, and rightfully so, right? Like there is, you know, very good reasons and very well-documented reasons of why there's mistrust when it comes to participating in these types of studies. And so it's understandable, but it's, you know, 
getting people to meet them meet them where they are and the understanding that they have and as i said like really trying to improve scientific communication to enhance that trust within those communities so i guess you will have protocols in place though it's going to be really complicated to go from the mice that have they're very confined. You don't mm-hmm. have any, they're not, there aren't any confounding factors. Mm-hmm. But with humans, it's always a real complicated task to either capture all the factors or isolate factors that mm-hmm. could be mitigating circumstances for that kind of consumption. Oh, definitely. Humans are a lot messier. <laughs> There's always so many other things that go into play, right? The environment that they're in, how they were raised, um, societal and cultural how you know, stigmas. Report. And yeah, there's there's always so many things that go into it. So anytime like I read studies about, um, yeah. in particular, youth like self-reporting their drug use, right? Um, I always take it with a grain of salt because, you know, there's very good reasons why some of them may not be honest about the types of drugs that they're using or how frequently they use them and things like that. And so um, there are definitely a lot of other factors that go into it. So I'm not in particular going to be um, continuing this research as I move into my faculty position. I'll be a teaching faculty. And so I won't be having my, I won't be running my own lab. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Well, but that'll be kind of tough for you. It'll it'll be a good transition. I, this is actually what I want to do. I really want to um, be able to focus on teaching. And so I'm hoping that other people will be able to um, take the findings that I have from my dissertation research and then carry it on. So it shows you, I mean, you bring then to your teaching, your chops that you spent mm-hmm. like, like, uh, what was it yesterday, 12 hours in the lab, yeah. but that not, <laughs> it's not just the time I'm just saying, but that, but so that you've done been there, you've been doing that. And so mm-hmm. then they can see that, that that's in your dissertation. Well, let's talk about, I want to hear and listeners, I know, because we've, we've had Daniel Watt talking on the show previously, and we had some of her student Uh, her interns, her mentees on Mm -hmm. at the same time. So maybe you could talk about some of the formative experiences in organizing aspiring black STEM students. Some stories you have. Oh, uh, so I have (laughs) multiple different types of experience. So I've always been a mentor. And yeah, (laughs) I love doing um, these things every, you know, anytime from being an undergraduate and mentoring either my peers or um high school students and now as a graduate student, um, of course, you know, mentoring undergraduates and graduate students who are coming in after me. So there has been lots of different experiences as far as doing that. And then, of course, leading Black and Narrow has been an interesting experience as a whole, um, just being able to connect people. I think my favorite parts of mentoring involve really just being able to connect students with other people that I know. So I love expanding their network. I love if I have a student who's like, oh, I'm interested in policy work. I'm like, oh, like I know this person over here who um, has been doing this. Like maybe you can talk to them. So even though I don't have all of the expertise, even though I don't have, you know, this perfect um, knowledge about every single thing, I can connect them with someone else who might be able to help them and guide them in those ways. And so for me, that's been incredibly helpful because being a first generation college student, um, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And there were so many things I didn't know how to ask. I didn't know where to begin. I'm still figuring it out right now. Oh, we all are. (laughs) Oh my goodness, Angeline. Yeah. So I love that I get to be that person for them and help them find those types of connections. I wonder if you've been at this long enough, you can see a trend where there's more and more sort of um, the the feeling that the black and neural prospects, that they're demonstrating more and more sort of knowing, I've got this, I can do this. There's less and less of the imposter syndrome going on. Can you, can you see that? 
I think it has been really helpful with Black and Nera in particular. Uh, one of our goals is to increase visibility. And it's really to just show, you know, uh, Black students that they have the potential to thrive in this field, whether they want to go in academia and become a professor or if they want to go into industry or if they want to go into, you know, the government or if they want to go into whatever it is they want to do, that there are other Black people in these positions and it's attainable. It's not like, you know, this is a completely impossible scenario where you have no idea how to get there and you have no guidance. Um, one of the best things about Black and Narrow has been uh, our ability to create like a membership directory. So on our website, we have profiles of I believe it's around 450 now black scholars all around the world who are in different stages of their career that black students can then reach out to and ask for guidance and support. And all of them, every single person I've ever reached out to has been so incredibly kind, more than glad to take time out of their day to talk to a student, to let them know how they got here on this path, you know, give them advice and support on how they can achieve their dreams. And so for me, I think that has been one of the best parts about leading this organization is just being able to, you know, like I said, offer that guidance and support to these students and show them like this is completely possible for you. And there are people here who want to support you as you get there. So that's been a big job, though, because there's first the skepticism about how public health has treated persons of color, mm -hmm. black persons. It, imposter syndrome is just, it's a microaggression. Uh, maybe it's a macroaggression. I, maybe tell me what you would call it, but sort of projecting that onto somebody. Mm -hmm. So so sort of getting through all that. So is it kind of becoming a, like an exponentially, uh, we grafted sort of a progress made on you know, people getting to raise to their aspirations? Um, I think that it definitely varies by person, the level yeah. of imposter syndrome in which they feel, right? But I'm hoping by having more of these role models, by showcasing that there are, you know, there are Black people here who are doing incredibly well in these fields and um, that you don't have to go at it alone and that it's okay if you don't understand everything, right? Like, I'm very honest and mm. open about the things that I don't know because I'm hoping that it'll provide some comfort to students who are feeling the same way and maybe are afraid to admit it like I was. Um, and so I think... For me, it's really um, meeting students where they are, right? And like being, it, whenever I give a talk, like I always try to start at the very beginning. I always try to make sure I'm talking to, I think of myself and like where I was when I first started graduate school or even in undergrad. And I try to talk to myself with like the level of knowledge that I know I did not have. And so that helps me bring everyone else up, you know, at the same mm -hmm. pace. And then if the students, you know, who are in the room already know it, like that's completely fine. It's just a refresher for them. Um, and so I think that also helps with that imposter syndrome too, because it's not like I'm jumping 10 paces ahead um, and you're missing, you know, that foundational knowledge that other people might already have. And that's, I, I think when we talk about imposter syndrome, it's also a sense of privilege, right? So have you had the privilege of having someone who's been through this before, either in your family or in your immediate circle, right? And if you don't have that type of privilege, then you're always going to feel like you're behind. Absolutely. So there's first there was Black in STEM, mm -hmm. and that occurred, that was the pivotal moment. I'm trying to remember what there was, a, that wasn't, what was that set Black in STEM in motion? So there was there have been several different uh, Black and STEM groups um, in the past. So there have been tons of different movements that have already started back in, uh, I believe, like 2014. And then there's like Vanguard STEM as well. And so there's tons of different uh, movements trying to support Black people and people of color um, within STEM spaces and to offer them support and community and guidance. And so in 2020, when everything was happening with 
everyone becoming more aware of the discrimination and police brutality against Black um, Americans in particular, it was isolating, you know, being a Black student being a black person in academia um, when you're in these predominantly white spaces and people aren't really talking about it so I know even here you know when I because of course COVID was happening and everything but you know I still had to come in I still had to go into lab I still you know had experiments to do and things like that but no one was really talking about it even like emails we were getting from the university no one was really talking about these major issues that were occurring and that were affecting in particular the black students right like I did not care about my experiments at the time I was more worried about my safety and the safety of my husband and the safety of my dad and you know like people that I love and care about because you just never know Um, and it was terrifying it was a very terrifying time and so it felt very isolating as a black academic. And from that, um, and these types of incidences, a lot of these black and ex groups uh, were born. And so, um, in particular, the incident with uh, Amy Cooper in Central Park, that's right? right. She, that's yeah. where it came from. So right. there was that the incident. entitled woman trying mm-hmm. to sort of uh, find tell the bird watcher he's not welcome in yep. Central Park, and that really catalyzed on a the bad black... weekend. Yeah, <laughs> and that really catalyzed uh, Black Birders Week. And so Black Birders Week was um, really celebrating black people within nature and showing that we do belong there right? Like we have a right to be there as anybody else and celebrating that. And then there was uh, Black and Astro, which celebrated Black people in astronomy. And so Black and Neuro got started really just from a tweet that I put out. Um, and I was just asking, when are we going to do a Black and Neuro week? Because I personally had not seen that many Black neuroscientists. And I knew we were out there. I just didn't know where. And I wanted to be able to connect with that type of community. And I didn't know if anyone else had already thought about this or was planning on it. Um, but there were so many people. There was such great support both from um, Black neuroscientists as well as non-Black allies um, who were really excited to see this come together and um, wanted to be a part of making it happen. And so it social media is a very powerful thing um, as far as like bringing together these types of communities. And Black Neuro's website, phenomenal. It gives me goosebumps. Oh. <laughs> that whole, that it's just so polished and there's so much talent in there. I mean, you could spend... You could geek out for weeks and months going through what all those presentations are that are posted, probably because of all the virtual uh, lectures mm-hmm. recorded and now available on a black and neural kind of website. So yeah, yeah. little tiny silver lining, but I don't like to talk about silver linings when it's been so devastating, <laughs> the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if you want to say anything about it, you know, how... Michael Yassa and others have been supporting all the black and neural work right here. Yeah. Give, give them a, you know, give them a grade or, you know, a shout out to them. Oh, of course. No, at UCI, we've had uh, immense support, which has been absolutely wonderful. So when black and neural was just kind of an idea and <laughs> I was trying to figure out, you know, how to really bring this in. One of the big things that uh, we were able to do when we initially started black and neural was um, obtain sponsorship from different departments and universities and institutions because we knew that we wanted to be able to pay our speakers and our panelists and you know all of these black scholars giving their time yeah to show that we really value it they're giving their time to talk about their research but also their lived experiences right whether they're talking about you know the service and outreach and mentorship that they did we just wanted to be able to offer them some type of monetary you know support to show them that we really do appreciate their time and so thankfully we were able to receive a ton of sponsorship which was absolutely incredible Um, but it's not like you know it could just go into my bank account right (laughs) like and so what was really amazing was that the CNLM here has been a huge supporter. Um, the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory has been an incredible support. Um, 
for Black and Neuro since its inception. And so Mike Yasa and Manuela Yasa as well, um, and Diana Laughlin over there um, have been just truly wonderful allies in helping get Black and Neuro off the ground um, and providing guidance um, and to keep us even now to like help us keep going anytime, you know, there's anything that we need help with, whether it's like creating a registration form or trying to figure out a new software, like they have just been wonderful in helping us figure it out um, because they have, you know, more expertise in this. When Black and Neuro began and even now we're trainees, right? These are graduate students and postdocs and we don't have any formalized training and running an organization of this magnitude. We just know that we love it and we're passionate about it and we're kind of figuring it out as we go and it's been incredibly successful so far and we're we're so proud of it. Uh, but it's also been wonderful to have the support of people who do have more expertise in running these types of things. So you get to take to your, you said it's a teaching post. It's a, it's not a tenure track. It's a, t- it is non-tenure it's, track. Um, it's a three-year contract position. A, a three. Okay. Well, let's, um, th- do the, those posts turn into a tenure track that you, um, that, possibly? Uh, I'm Just not so sure. I, it's going to be, as of right now, so my new position, going into my faculty position, um, I will be an assistant professor and I can still, you know, go through promotion and everything like that to associate and full professor. But it's going to be primarily focused on teaching is 50% of my job and the other 50% will be leading my own DEI initiatives um, and program directing. So I'll be co-directing the postback program there, um, which is specifically targeted to support uh, Black, uh, Hispanic, Indigenous um, students who have, you know, graduated with their bachelor's degree and need more research experience or experience in general as they're applying for graduate school or medical school or MD, PhD programs. So the problem with radio is there are no visuals so you can't see how decked out Angeline is with her natural melanin black girl magic t-shirt on there it's just that's it's a heck of a, th- a costume here so I just want to wish you such success or you're going to be missed here by all the seeds that you've been planting around but you get to watch them from any distance mm-hmm. and you get to take black and neuro to Minneapolis and mm-hmm. to nationally everywhere so I'm sure that's that's always going to be a sort of a hyphenated kind of a title for you. Yeah, I'm really excited about, you know, what the future holds and seeing where things go, but also um, for the communities that, you know, we've built here and the Black scholars that um, I've helped bring into the neuroscience program here. I'm really excited to see them thriving as well. And so I'm sure I'll be back to come visit. You know, I'm sure hopefully if uh, people invite me out for talks, I'd be more than glad to come back. Okay, great. Well, please be careful of your own personal health and not being, everybody's going to want a piece of you Mm -hmm. as they have already in the past. I'm going to own that I've asked for a piece for this interview. (laughs) So I hope that you're able to stay ahead of being an an exhausted person of color in neuroscience. Be be good to yourself. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. My guest was Angeline Dukes, currently a PhD candidate in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior, co-founder, as we've talked a lot about, and president of Black and Neuro. She's investigating addiction, learning, memory, and behavior. She can be followed on Twitter at future Dr. Dukes. Thank you again, Angeline. I really appreciate your time and all the best of luck in your research (laughs) and mentoring. We'll be right back with South Coast Rep Director Lou Bellamy with this thoroughly engaging show, What I Learned in Paris. We'll be right back. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Lou Bellamy, who's returned to South Coast Repertory, directing What I Learned in Paris. The show runs through March 19th at the Performing Arts Center in Costa Mesa. Lou Bellamy is the founder and artistic director emeritus of Penumbra Theatre. Over his 40-year tenure, Penumbra has been become one of the America's premier theaters dedicated to dramatic exploration of the African-American experience, presenting more than 45 world premieres, including August Wilson's first professional production. Lou is an OB award-winning director for directing Wilson's Two Trains Running. And when the penumbra isn't spotlighting Wilson, it's adapting Zora Neale Hurston's and Langston Hughes' works. While an accomplished actor over 38 years, he, Lou Bellamy's been on the faculty at the University of Minnesota. So, folks, we're covering Minnesota a lot today with what Angeline Dukes and uh, where she's headed and uh, where now that Lou Bellamy's been uh, sort of based. He's most recently directed Penumbra's production of Pipeline and Brothers Paranormal. Among his directing credits outside Penumbra are plays at, we're going to list them, a lot of them, among them are, Logan Square Arts Festival, Indiana Repertory Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Arizona Theater Company, Denver Center for the Performing Arts, Milwaukee Repertory Theater, Signature Theater, Cleveland Playhouse, Guthrie Theater, Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, Jiva or Geva Theater Center, Kansas City Repertory Theater, Gem Theater, Roundhouse, and Hartford Stage. The subject of today's interview is his direction of the all-African-American cast in What I Learned in Paris here at the South Coast Repertory. And along with all this, Lou Bellamy is one of South Coast Rep's artistic directors, Dave Ivers' mentors. Mr. Lou Bellamy comes to us today from Minnesota. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Lou Bellamy. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was great. I I liked hearing all that. Well, Good. you did it all. So it's like a person can say it, but the all that heavy lifting, that's on Lou Bellamy's shoulders. So congratulations on your work. And here, it's a, it's a play covering a great deal of ground in time and in life stages. And I, I just, you know, when I, and, and I want to quickly say that the playwright is Pearl... Is it Cleage? I just want Clegg. Clegg. She said Clegg. Clegg. Okay, and she wrote this based on her own experience on campaigns for the former Atlanta mayor, Maynard Ferguson. That was a big first in his win in the early 70s. And so I just, I'm going to tee up some thoughts from you on so many levels that I was listening to this and I was channeling the in both directions, Lou, the what other women i mean the the main character is is a woman but what other women what they learned in paris i was thinking in the play i was thinking josephine baker and i'm letting it master it some more and i'm thinking nina simone they they got some pretty special love in what in paris and then i heard in the other direction and you'll let us know if this is something you were conscious of but i'm thinking this play is a handoff to stacy abrams and others deepening their leadership profile in current georgia politics well, I, I think certainly uh, these things don't exist in a vacuum, and, and they tend to affect one another. There's something to be said, it seems, for an artist to 
get out of their sort of creative milieu, get away from that so that they can look at that experience from another vantage point. And Paris has been for many black artists a vantage point to look back at the United States. Uh, the women you mentioned, James Baldwin, that sort of uh, experience seems to give them a kind of clarity. Okay, thank you. Yes. I think that the treatment that African Americans receive in Paris and in Europe generally is sometimes void of the the racism and violence and so forth that is inflicted upon them in the United States. Yes. Well, and the messages are certainly richer for patrons that are familiar with Maynard Ferguson's groundbreaking. No, Maynard Jackson. Ma- Maynard Jackson. Why did I do that? Maynard Ferguson. Somebody. I would play an interstitial music. I beg your pardon, <laughs> Maynard. But the. And I know that's what my. Yeah, that's where I go sometimes. So the. But they're certainly richer with associations of the campaign in the seventies. But it's so very universal without the knowledge of that campaign in Atlanta. And that's what you're giving a nod to. You're bringing every generation along with you in this play. I, I hope so. I, I think that, that wherever we stand, we got here by virtue of the efforts of those who came before us. And uh, this play, as you indicated, nods to the future as well as the past. The wonderful thing about the play for me is is that it's sort of couched in the everyday affairs of human beings. Some people might want to term it a rom-com or something like that, but for me it goes deeper. You've got all the historical significance, but you've got people involved in life, and it's their stories, their having affairs, uh, you know, problems, babies, (laughs) all kinds of things that people must manage along with their civic and emotional or uh, national responsibilities. Which were sizable with that groundbreaking, for sure. And so I, I also, I want to talk about how the playwright, Pearl Clegg, whether with her extensive work in grassroots campaigns and writing, isn't she ba- the background character in this play, the playwright herself? Well, you know, I I think so. Uh, you can carry that only so far. Most writers uh, sort of rebel at the notion that their writing is autobiographical. Um, and I don't know how Clegg feels about that, that sort of... Uh, understanding of her work, but certainly you're a product and everything that you present is a product of your environment and your experiences. And she had many experiences inside that Maynard Jackson campaign, as you indicated. So she knows the campaign milieu uh, very, very well, and and I think it's represented very well in the play. It is. I guess maybe a better word, Lou, is that she her life is sort of the scaffold for the play, not so much a bio for it. I think so. I think so. 
So for those of you who just tuned in, my guest is Obi winning director Lou Bellamy with his thoroughly engaging show at South Coast Rep, What I Learned in Paris, by the playwright Pearl Clegg. And the show's running now till March 19th. So there's time, folks. There's time. So I want to talk about putting all the pieces together. If you could talk about how much you got from collaborating with all hands on deck, the look, the sound, and the feel of this play. Well, as, as you've seen the play, yep. I, I believe. Yes, yes. Um, you know the importance of the music that, that's in it. I've had several requests for the playlist. Yes, <laughs> put me on <laughs> many, the list. Yes. Many people want to want to have that playlist. Um, music is very important in defining the African American ethos. Uh, Amiri Baraka, the, the author of Blues People, calls music the primary language of African Americans. So if you don't want to go that far, you just have to admit its importance. And uh, you can see that in the play. I understand audiences are clapping to the curtain call music and almost dancing in the aisles. So that, that, that's a good thing. And um, yes, and the sound is so all, crisp. It's yeah, such that the fidelity of the music, the system is really so crisp at the South Coast Rep. But you sort of let us listen to, a, you know, a little bit of a tale of that music. It's not just a brief interstitial. So that's really generous of you to sort of keep us in the mood and moving us through there. That was a great touch. But how about the collaborating with all the others for the look and the sound? Like I, your your costume person had it perfect. She's got, you can tell exactly what that person's role is on the stage by their attire. It's so, so darn clear. I, I, I think so. It, it is, as you point out, a collaboration with a number of artists. And that's one of the wonderful things about theater. It brings all those talents together and points them in one direction toward one objective and when i began talking with the costumer dana woods i said that i wanted the lead character evie to feel like a butterfly she should be light and and uh uh when she lands you know she should sort of settle and uh the costume certainly lend themselves to that. Her husband is a very successful lawyer. He has many costume changes, and many costumers don't enjoy dressing men. They find them rather drab, which is interesting because in the animal kingdom, that's where all the color is. Right. But um, she's dressed this guy in several different outfits, and He's really uh, very, very dapper. And all of it sort of fits together to define their social, socioeconomic status and so forth, and power. And their so role forth. in the campaign. You can tell who's the logistics person, who's exactly. the kind of in, the front person and the sort of the, uh, the power broker of the breaking candidate, successful candidate on the campaign on the election night as the play sure. starts. If costumes and set and so forth are successful, they extend the work of the actor extend their character, extend the reach of the character and so forth. And this this set, costumes, sound, makeup, hair, 
all of it tend to do that. It's very well accomplished, I think. And the lead, I've got to say, Ms. Levon, I actually, as, as a, a wonderful accent was, I got to sit next to her father. <laughs> so <laughs> wonderful. that wonderful. Yeah. Oh, it was so wonderful, and he was. He hasn't missed. I, I think he told me he only missed one of her openings in sixteen years. Wow. Yeah. He's he caught part. She's of... a member of our company at Penumbra, and she and I work together quite often, really. Okay, well, and he he let me know, like, there's the job we as the audience had to do is to hear that punchline, respond to that punchline, and, and not miss the next line. So that, you know, I got a, a, a fine tutorial, and it was and enjoying, enjoying the music with him was, you know, it was more amazing. So I want to know, you've been around all the, the country and all. I'm just always curious, Lou Bellamy. The differences of audiences in Orange County and, let's say, Chicago, St. Paul, Minnesota, all these other places. What's what's different? Well, I, I think that it's the audience has the ability to uh, grab on to what the actors are doing or not. And I think that it is not so much the degree to which they, they grab it, but the spirit speed, sort of. Um, Different audiences catch on to what we're sort of sending them more quickly. Some of them need to be coaxed along. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of them are not familiar with the cultural expression that's going on on stage. And so it takes a little time for them to acquaint themselves with it. I call it leaning in. They have to lean into the yes. drama and until they begin to understand all of the cues. And then once they have all the materials, that door, for instance, that that set has. Oh, my gosh, the, the ding-dong. There is no door. No, there's no doorbell. That, that, uh, the doorbell starts to just start making me tense. <laughs> and, and what happens is... Early on, we sort of teach the audience, this is the convention here, and this is what it means. And then what is so wonderful about theater is they accept that, suspend their disbelief, and say, okay, let's go on. I know the rules now. Yes. Well, I... Yes. It's wonderful. It really, really is. And by the second to last scene... That I just really it was so it wasn't a rom com as you said it's it's much deeper and I oh, I yeah. felt like you know and then I turned to to Evie's dad the, her real life dad and I said you Ms. Levon you know I wish I had seen this play thirty years ago because that that message is she's pitching to every demographic well I just want to let people know they can get all the details for getting tickets and getting acquainted with all of the persons involved in the production for. What I Learned in Paris, running now till March 19th. So I'm not going to ask you about your next projects. I'm just making sure this play gets fully digested and fully cherished. It is a lovely piece. People are leaving there so happily. I mean, it's just great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lou. Okay. Thank you, Claudia. My guest was Lou Bellamy. He's the OB-winning director of a thoroughly engaging show at the South Coast Rep at the Performing Arts Center. And what I learned in Paris. Well, I thank you again and all the best in your future. Take care. Oh.
So we're going to wrap this show here tonight, 6 p.m. Pacific time. We all get to camp out in front of President Biden's State of the Union. I can't imagine all the ground he's going to try to cover this Friday night. Please have a look at UCI Orchestra conductor Stephen Tucker's program at the Barclay. That's at 8 p.m. And for next week's show, it's International Women's Day. Stay tuned. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Oh, and folks, verify your news sources. It's going to be a crazy stretch. What's going on?